Welcome to episode 1982 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Remember last week we were talking to our WBC preview guest, Sean Spradling, and I think he brought up the synchronized flushing that goes on in Japan as everyone <laughs> watching the WBC takes bathroom breaks at the same time. Yeah. And you can see just the, the volume of fluid passing through the pipes at those moments. Well, along those lines, I saw the rating information for the Japan versus Italy quarterfinal game. In Japan, mm-hmm. according to a report from Sponichi, apparently 48% of Japanese households were watching that game, which is a, a record for the WBC there, but is just a pretty extraordinary number, I think, when you put that in context. I mean, again, like half of the households in Japan are tuned into this thing at any moment. And I have serious envy for this environment, it, this makes me long for a, a monoculture that I've never known. Yeah. Of course, the U.S. is more populous than Japan and more diverse ethnically, and all of Japan is in one time zone. So you'd never really get that portion of the U.S. population on the same page about anything. But I envy an environment where a Shohei Otani start is basically the Super Bowl. I mean, like, yeah. that's got to be incredible. In fact, I think it's bigger than the Super Bowl is here, actually, because I, I think – and the Super Bowl had strong ratings this year, as it does always, if football yeah. is a, a juggernaut. But the rating, I think, for the Super Bowl this year was a 40, I believe. You see two different numbers generally. You see rating and share. Rating is the percentage of all – TV-equipped households that are watching something, and share is the percentage of people who are actually watching TV at that moment who are watching something. So if someone has a TV but isn't watching anything, then they're not counted against the share. But I think the most recent Super Bowl had a 40 rating, so like 40% of households with a TV in the U.S. were watching this. So this is bigger than the Super Bowl for a quarterfinal of Japan versus Italy, Shohei Otani blowing balls by Vinny Pasquantino, it's bigger than the Super Bowl. Like, I just, I love that. I want to go to there. I want to be in that environment, basically. It sounds like so much fun just to know that this is the water cooler conversation is is baseball. Like, I think the highest rated World Series ever in the U.S. was 1980s World Series, which averaged a 32.8 rating. So like a third of U.S. households on average were watching the 1980 World Series. This blows this away. It's like half of the people with TVs watching this WBC quarterfinal game. That's just an indication of how much it matters to many people around the world. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And I think that like we just don't want to dismiss that impact. And we don't want to dismiss the impact of like how many people went to see WBC action here in the US this year. Like the mm-hmm. I, I saw that the gate like exceeded a million. Yeah. Just got a press release from MLB bragging about right. the first round sets records in attendance, viewership 
membership and merchandise sales. Right. Yeah, one million fans in attendance or more than that. And it's all about the ratings and the merch and everything else. So just yeah. forget about it when Diaz's knee. Look how many people are paying attention to this, <laughs> which is true. Yeah. And like we talked about last time, like there is, there's just always a risk that you're going to have injury like this. And, you know, I think you want to do everything you can to mitigate it. Clearly it's something that the WBC organizers, including major league baseball care about because there are pitch limits, but sometimes freaky stuff just happens. And that's really unfortunate for him and for the team and whatnot. But like, it isn't, I don't think it should be a gating factor if we saw, you know, it, be a persistent problem if we looked at it and saw that it was leading to a disproportionate number of injuries in the spring, then like maybe we think about the timing of it. But I don't know. So far this this spring, the thing that seems to be the most dangerous for players is being a pitching prospect. And that's <laughs> yeah, pretty right. much always true, which I don't, again, don't say to diminish that. It's like... Every time you open Twitter, there's a new guy getting Tommy John. Yeah. Freaking sucks. <laughs> Stay tuned for the Nationals preview next week. <laughs> yeah. Or having spine issues in the case of Jackson Drew. Mm. So, like, um, you're never going to be able to eliminate it entirely. But I think that the idea that that risk is being incurred in service of something that no one cares about is just patently false. You know, mm -hmm. and whether the balance is right for you, I think, let me put it this way. You can dislike the WBC and not be Keith Olbermann, right? I don't want to tar sure. everyone with that brush or whoever the Yahoo from Barstool was. Yeah. But I, I think that it is it is important to have that conversation honestly. And it is not as if they are um, risking injury in games that don't mean something to them or don't mean something to the people watching or the people going to the ballpark to see them. Clearly, this is an event that is really meaningful to people, players and fans included. And so that, I think, is an important mark in its favor. Yeah, I just have FOMO or maybe it's not fear. It's it's knowledge of missing out Como. I don't know. But mm. I want to be in a place where I'm going to the bathroom at the same time as all of my country people because we're all <laughs> watching Shohei Otani. <laughs> we're all just sitting on the throne, just uh, ruminating on what we just saw. So <laughs> I've, I've never experienced that really because uh, baseball, it, look, all the ratings conversation about baseball, often it's tiresome and uh, people make apples and oranges comparisons. Sure. And it's not even as close as apples and oranges. At least they're both fruits. I don't know that the things that baseball gets compared to, I guess they're usually sports. So maybe that's close enough. But because there's so much inventory would be one way to put it in baseball. There are just so many games. You can't compare it to a sport where there are so many fewer games. And so each one matters more in the grand scheme of things. And so when people bemoan the ratings of baseball, often, first of all, they're not taking into account the fact that ratings are falling for almost everything except the NFL. And also, it's just more of a local model, right? Right. And that's fine. Baseball has healthy local followings and the sport is strong because of that. But it would still be kind of cool if everyone was watching. Like, it's nice when all of baseball Twitter is watching the same postseason yeah. game, but you don't have quite the same sort of zeitgeist. This is the biggest thing that's happening in the culture right now. This is what everyone is going to be talking about tomorrow. You probably had that to some extent in earlier eras of American history, but... 
boy, I don't know that you can compare with <laughs> half of the households tuning into this thing at the same time. So yeah. it's uh, the power of Otani to some extent, but it's also that the WBC has gotten progressively more popular. I mean, these are breaking marks set in earlier WCCs, which were also well-watched in Japan. So it just yeah. sounds like a, a fun sort of frenzy. Yeah, I completely agree. This has also inspired me to learn that um, for some reason, my spam filter was filtering out public the the PR address for be so hey thanks for uh, letting me uh, figure that out here. <laughs> maybe it's uh, because it was detecting all the language about co-exclusive uh, sports betting partners and thought it sounded like spam because uh, yeah. it kind of is <laughs> so I don't know that the spam filter is wrong there but occasionally there's some useful press releases a lot of them though are about official such and such of MLB anyway we have a team preview pod today yeah. and we're talking about two disparate organizations, I guess one could say, certainly spending-wise and probably ratings-wise, too, since we're on that subject. We will be talking about the New York Mets with Disha Thosar of Fox Sports, and then we will be talking about the Oakland Athletics with Matt Kawahara of the San Francisco Chronicle. So, because we have this pairing of the spends and the spends nots, I just wanted to bring up a, a newsletter that Joe Sheehan sent out earlier this week, joesheehan.com, great baseball newsletter. I'm a subscriber. And he wrote a newsletter edition this week that he headlined The Coming War which is ominous, foreboding. And it is about the RSN stuff that we talked a little bit about earlier this week. So the official bankruptcy was declared by Diamond Sports Group and Bally's. And so now we're sorting all this out. And Joe wrote about an aspect of this that I don't know that we touched on at great length here, but he pointed out that not only could this potentially sap some money from the major league ecosystem and decrease revenue that teams have been raking in from RSNs for a while, but also it could exacerbate some differences among teams and often owners of teams that don't spend a lot and bemoan their market situation. They could afford to spend more than they are spending, but there is still some disparity. And Joe makes a case here that perhaps this could lead to that being accentuated in a way that is kind of concerning, I think. So I'll, I'll just read some excerpts here from his newsletter. This is about, he says, the long-term effects in a league where local TV revenue disparities have been a topic for 35 years. I think this could lead to a war that costs MLB a season and perhaps even leads to a Premier League baseball split, as we saw in England in 1992. The local broadcast rights fees of many MLB teams were propped up by the RSN distributor model that paid RSNs according to the distribution of the channel. MLB teams were perhaps the biggest beneficiaries of the system. The system was bringing a leak as customers left cable and satellite services, but with so many teams having long-term deals with their RSNs, it was a problem MLB seemingly had time to address. So we talked about that earlier this week. But he says the Diamond Sports Group bankruptcy and the Warner Brothers discovery abandonment eliminates that buffer period. Whether the teams get all their rights fees in 2023 or 2024 or even 2025, what's certain is that the chain has been broken. The line from customers to distributors to RSNs to teams is no more. And he runs through some of the math that I alluded to about how it might be tough to make up for this lost revenue. So he uses the Mariners as an example. To pick a team, they're estimated to take in $89 million a year 
earlier from AT&T Sportsnet, which may no longer exist. To patch that hole, they would need to sell 890,000 Mariners-only streaming subscriptions at $100 a year. In 2019, the last year for which I have data, an average of 55,000 people a night watch the Mariners. If you double that, because the Mariners are a lot more attractive now, you get to 110,000 a night. Convince all of them to buy a streaming package, and you only have to charge $809 a year to break even. So baseball fans, uh, they'll pay a lot for baseball, but maybe not that much. Of course, there's also sponsorship money and ad revenue that could maybe help make up for some of that. But it's tough to make the math work. And as Joe notes, it's worse at the low end the reds get 48 million a year from a dsg well they did how many people do you think are going to pay even a hundred dollars a year to watch the 2023 reds the 2023 pirates the 2023 tigers or you could lump the a's in there there's just no way in the short term to replace the guaranteed money in these deals there may be no way in even the medium term even if you can you'll have teams unsure from year to year what their local revenue will be and then the big finish here The last 30-odd years of baseball economics have been a fight over the distribution of local television revenue. The 1994 strike at its core was caused by the owners agreeing to a revenue-sharing deal among themselves and then trying to make the players pay for it. As the gap in local TV revenue has grown, MLB has created a system to share that money among its teams, not equally, but in a fashion that mitigates the gap in potential revenue among markets. That's based on a formula in the CBA in which teams pay 48% of their local revenues into a share pool that is then redistributed equally among all 30 teams. So today we're talking about a revenue share payee and a revenue share payer. And Joe notes the teams affected by the Diamond Sports Group bankruptcy are by and large revenue sharing recipients. I'm not sure how much more you can recently ask the Dodgers or Yankees or Cubs to transfer to the Marlins and Brewers and Royals. But if that CBA formula is applied to future seasons with some teams getting full value from their TV deals and others getting nothing or close to it, we're going to find out where the limit is. That's why I think a war is coming. The collapse of the RSN model exacerbates the revenue gaps that currently exist, and gaps in local revenue have been a sore point for a long time. The teams affected by this are going to expect the others to help, or perhaps more to the point, adhere to the revenue-sharing formula in the CBA, and I'm just not sure how much more you can get from those teams. I also don't think the Dodgers or Yankees or Red Sox will be eager to give up the local exclusivity that undergirds their RSNs to help build an MLB TV product with no blackouts. There are a few ways this could go. It could be 1994, where teams agree on a deal in which large revenue teams will rescue small revenue teams so long as they can all get the players to pay for it through restrictions on the market. I'm not sure how that would end up, but I'm certain we'd lose a season finding out. Don't want to do that. And then the other possibility, he says, Premier League Baseball, with 18 to 24 of the healthiest teams splitting off into their own circuit. It's already very difficult to structure a league with teams in cities with 8 million people in cities with 800,000 people. If teams' ability to generate revenue diverges further, it may be impossible to hold a 30-team league together. MLB is not the NFL, a national product broadcast from 32 TV studios 17 times a year. Local revenue matters in baseball and the gaps in local revenue post-RSN model may become too great to overcome. So that's sort of dire sounding. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't want either of those outcomes to occur, but that's why this is a big deal or potentially a big deal. I don't know that all of that will come to pass. It's hard to forecast how all of this stuff will work, but that's the sort of stuff that is potentially on the table as we go through this sort of earth-shaking upheaval in the economic model of baseball. So yeah. sort, of, sort of scary. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not good. There's still going to be a lot of money in the sport and the game, I think, but when 
times are good and it's boom times and owners are talking about biblical losses, then what are they going to be saying if things actually do take a step back? I yeah. can imagine how much the rhetoric will be dialed up at that point. So yeah. they're potentially positive outcomes, less uh, fewer blackouts. And and I guess if, if teams actually are dependent on not just kind of baked in revenue streams and they actually have to convince people to pay for them, <laughs> then that could be good in some ways, right? Then it, it could be less of a tendency to just sort of sit and accept the revenue sharing funds you're getting and not invest money into the team, such as uh, the A's are doing and have done. But it still might be tough because not every team can be good at all times. So I don't really know how it shakes out, but it's uh, probably important to consider these things. Yeah, and I don't want to downplay the the potential impact on you know on orgs that aren't necessarily drawing right. Mm-hmm. But I do take some comfort in the fact that like sports programming remains very popular in the aggregate and like quite lucrative in the aggregate. And I, yes. I I do think that like when Ben looked at this in the case of Bally, like part of this is that like they used a mechanism of financing that isn't really sustainable for them, right? Like the right. the debt piece of this is is pretty important. It's not that the underlying broadcasts themselves were like drawing significantly fewer viewers. Yeah. People want to watch sports and they don't want to time shift it. And it's good. Yeah. And so I think the fact that the broadcasts themselves are still a highly desirable bit of programming and that it is a highly desirable bit of programming live probably means that this can get sorted out. I think we need to be cognizant of the potential downside scenarios, but it, it isn't, it doesn't feel at least at this moment, like it is an insurmountable obstacle because it wouldn't be surprising to me if they just figure it out or they find another buyer or whatever. Like these also weren't um, broadcasts that they necessarily like wanted to sell in the first place, but you know, regulators (laughs) do say (laughs) sometimes you got to break it up. So I, I'm not panicked. My uh, radar, my radar is peaked. I was going to, (laughs) <laughs> Combine two things there. Your your interest is peaked. It's on your radar. Yeah. Both of those things remain true. But I am not I am not in the panic position just yet. Yeah. I'm typically slow to reach the panic position. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm fully there yet either, but it's uh, disconcerting. <laughs> I just I didn't know that the reckoning could come this quickly. And yeah. potentially the fixes for some problems could come quickly yeah. too. But we'll see how it plays out and do check out Joe's newsletter since I just quoted liberally from that edition, <laughs> but there's more to it that I didn't read, if you can believe that. So we have previews to get to, and we will return to our trivia at the end of the episode, as always. So just to pose those questions to everyone, the standard three questions about the two teams that we are previewing today. Which team, the A's or the Mets, has the better head-to-head record against the other all-time? And then the other questions are highest war hitter and highest war pitcher who have played for both the Mets and the A's at some point. And then just the first hitter and pitcher, respectively, to have played for both of these teams. And I will provide those answers courtesy of Frequent Stat Blast consultant Ryan Nelson at the end after we do the pass blast. But 
Now we can get to the previews and we will start, as I said, with the Mets, who have a projected win total of 90.3. It's healthy, that's robust, even post-Edwin Diaz's injury. And they have a 26% chance to win the division, according to the Fangrass playoff odds, and a 78% chance to make the playoffs. So it's going to be a bit of a fight, but much better off than the A's, who are projected to win 67 and a half games. Round that whichever way you want with a 0.1% chance to win the division. So there is a chance. We are saying that there's a chance and a 0.6% chance to make the playoffs. So we will take a quick break now and we'll be back with Disha Thosar to talk about the Mets, followed by Matt Kawahara to talk about the A's. Watching television, watching television. Watching television, watching television. All right, we're going to try to preview the New York Mets season before any more Mets get hurt because they're dropping like flies lately. Not that that's a new phenomenon for New York Mets fans, unfortunately, but we are joined now by Disha Thosar, who covers the Mets, among other subjects, for Fox Sports. Disha, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. So it's been a particularly bad week for the bullpen, right? Even before the Edwin Diaz injury, there were a series of more minor injuries. There's Brooks Raley and Bryce Montes de Oca and Sam Coonrod, and then, of course, the capper with Diaz. So what does this unit look like, I guess, with the walking wounded here? What would it look like in Diaz's absence? I mean, how huge a loss is that and how does it stack up without that incredible back of the bullpen that they had with him last year? Yeah, I mean, the Mets bullpen now looks really bad. Uh, Edwin Diaz was really the only player on that roster the Mets could not afford to replace. There's just no way to to replace this unstoppable force that he's been for the Mets ever since his uh, really horrible uh, debut season in Queens, and he's completely bounced back. and And really, it's more of the identity of this bullpen is is hard to tell. There, there's no one on the market, no one in baseball that will replace that type of closer reliever that he was for them. So obviously, the Mets can look outside, and uh, there's already some rumblings of them uh, being in on Zach Britton. They they really should not hold back uh, in acquiring him. Um, but even beyond that, it, let's say the Britain deal does or does not happen. Uh, there's Adam Ottavino, uh, David Robertson. I can be either of. I can see either of those two competing now uh, for a closer spot. They both have experience uh, being that high leverage reliever role. Uh, Brooks Raley, if he recovers in time for opening day, but he should be making an impact soon. And then really the bright light. Uh, behind uh, the two that I've already mentioned is Drew Smith, who uh, there was certainly hype around him being really solid this year for the Mets anyway. And and now he's obviously really going to have to step up. But I think Mets fans uh, were pleased with what they saw from him, especially last year. So it's sort of it's hard to even imagine a Mets bullpen at this point without Edwin Diaz. But, but certainly the Mets are going to have to start preparing 
Yeah, I don't know if anyone else really rates the Timmy Trumpet entrance song that goes viral yes. in this bullpen. I don't, I don't know if there's some other song that we can bring out for Adam Adamino or David Robertson. Doesn't seem like it has the same potential. <laughs> I think no, you have to. No, I think you have to find your own bullpen entrance music in those moments. Anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They might need a bullpen card or really a whole <laughs> other musician or artist to come to City Field. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. I mean, obviously, it's terrible for Diaz. It's bad for the Mets. Uh, and it's a little odd for this preview podcast because I think coming into yesterday morning, I was prepared to ask about all of the terrific additions that New York had made. And I don't know that we need to belabor the Carlos Correa almost signing. Uh, maybe we can focus on a couple of the guys who they did actually bring in. And, you know, we can start, I, I guess, in a New look, but not entirely new look rotation. So what have you seen so far from Verlander and Cody Senga? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely fitting right into the clubhouse. I think um, I'm more worried about Kodai Senga than I am about Verlander in terms of uh, stuff and adjusting. I really don't see Verlander having any problem at all, not just within the Mets and a new team, but of course in the New York market, he's already handled it really well and and his starts in spring have been incredible. So I think in that way, Verlander seems set, ready to go. There's really just at this point, uh, opening day is left to see what he can do this season. With Kodai Senga, I'm a little worried because uh, all the bullpens that I've seen from him in spring, they've kind of been a mess. He's really struggling to adjust to the slope. Uh, the height is different than what it is for him at home. And uh, he's really just throwing balls into the dirt. There's always another language barrier between him and his catcher, Omar Naives, who is uh, speaking Spanish. And I mean, all of this will get, it's a little rough for, for a month or so is the expectation. So I'm really interested to see how Senga will fit into this rotation come the regular season, whether he'll be sort of that middle of the rotation starter that the Mets wanted uh, and how long really his adjustments uh, will take here. And of course, Jose Quintana, another addition now injured as well in a significant injury that's going to cost him a lot of time. And this was really a concern about the rotation, as good as its individual members are, their collective age is really up there with Verlander at 40 and Scherzer going on 39 and Carrasco 36 and has had injury issues himself. And so now with Senka looking a little shaky, maybe and having some tendonitis issues as well and Quintana out. And you can't necessarily count on the bullpen to shoulder a huge load, right, and do some load management with the starters. So how much of a concern do you see the age and infirmity of the various starters? And and how do you try to compensate for that in order to make sure that you have a healthy Verlander and Scherzer when October rolls around? Yeah, this is exactly the concern in that we already, even before these hits to the men's bullpen, were unsure really how deep into their starts uh, these sort of aging veterans can go. We've seen 
Scherzer and Verlander, of course, in the past throw eight, nine innings, complete games, but we're talking uh, different stages of their lives right now. And even Scherzer last year did not have that many starts where he went deep into the game. Really, I think six innings from each of them in those starts is almost like an unimaginable boon at this point to think that the Mets bullpen can carry three innings seems manageable, but uh, any more than that, it, it just is screaming a little bit of trouble, especially in the beginning of the season where these starters are not completely ramped up to what they will be toward the end. Again, this is another scenario where I'm less concerned about Verlander just by watching them in spring than I am with Scherzer and Carlos Carrasco, uh, some of the other veteran starters. And then I don't see David Peterson having a problem going deeper into games. His biggest problem is sort of avoiding that spiral inning. He lets things get a little too big. So he's really improved over that over the last year. So the Mets would definitely like that to continue. But yeah, deep starts and staying healthy is this rotation's biggest task. And kind of both of those things are largely out of their control, right? What can they do really to stay healthy beyond what they're already doing besides just maybe staying at home, never leaving the house? Uh, There's really not much more uh, these guys can do in that department. That strategy works for me but not so well for a baseball team. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not leaving the house is, is not in any way in conflict with the podcaster and writer's job, but unfortunately, <laughs> it seems like it would be a problem if you're a Met. Um, you, you mentioned Peterson beyond him in that fifth starter spot. Sort of how, how do you see the potential reinforcements at AAA prepping out for the Mets? You know, if they do either have another injury or any of these guys falter, what reinforcements do they have to offer here? Yeah, almost none, really. The Right now, the, the starting pitching depth uh, with the hit to Quintana has been okay because of David Peterson. But beyond that, if there is another injury to one of these starters, uh, there's Tyler McGill, uh, who can really slide right in easily into the rotation as he did last year. Uh, after that, there's really nothing left. They're really struggling the Mets with starting pitching depth, especially at AAA. Uh, so they knew this, obviously, going into the season, uh, losing these pitchers that could have played in that role, Bryce Montesteoka. Uh, it, it's really tough. This is not an ideal scenario. So I think the Mets really have no choice in many ways to go and get Zach Britton just as that safety net. And that doesn't even begin to solve uh, their problems there. Well, Mets fans no longer have to dread Jacob deGrom injuries, so not that they want Jacob deGrom to get hurt wherever he is, but you also miss out on the potential to see healthy Jacob deGrom. So it was an at times exciting and at times frustrating experience following him for the Mets over the past few years. Do you have any theories about why it was that the Mets didn't break the bank to bring him back? Obviously, the Rangers just went hard after him early and just got that deal done quickly. And of course, with Steve Cohen's bankroll, in theory, they could have matched or topped any offer, right? So why do you think they decided that it was time to concede on DeGrom? Yeah, I think it's kind of two-part here. Uh, one, and this being the, the biggest factor, is the Mets have seen DeGrom's injuries up close all of these years. Uh, no one really, no team understands his body training staff better uh, than the Mets. And and they kind of, whether they were looking at, and this is just speculation, but looking at how he would end up going forward, what they offered him is sort of ideal in their mind for a great pitcher, obviously, potentially future Hall of Fame pitcher, but with a heavy, heavy uh, injury history. So that's definitely the one part of it. Second part, uh, reading between the lines of uh, Steve Cohen, Mets owner, uh, his comments when he visited spring training, it, it really sounds like there was almost an attitude 
problem. Uh, there's he, Steve Cohen kept talking about how great the vibes were at spring training. Uh, and then he answered that way in response to a question about DeGrom no longer being there. Uh, so I think it really, we all know how sort of grumpy uh, and how much he kept to himself DeGrom. Uh, but Steve Cohen has said from day one that he's trying to build this new culture. Um, everyone else in that clubhouse, for the most part, with a few exceptions, uh, seems to be really on board with with that new identity, new culture. Uh, so I think it could be a little bit of, of that aspect of it, but mostly just the Mets not wanting to take such a big risk uh, uh, with his injury history. Well, we've brought Mets fans low by talking about the lack of depth on the pitching side, but maybe we can talk about a place where they seem to be bursting with depth so much so that despite not being able to secure the the services of Carlos Correa, you looked at the Mets lineup and you're like, you know, I think they're probably going to be okay, <laughs> which feels like a wild thing to be able to say. Uh, there's been shifting around on the position player side, and I actually want to start at the catcher position because – you know, they obviously still have Nito on the roster. They brought in Omar Narvaez as a free agent. They moved on from McCann and then they have Francisco Alvarez sort of looming. So how do you see the catching situation sort of shaking out? Yeah. So I think definitely with that acquisition of Omar Narvaez, they imagine him being platooning with Tomas Nito, who has also really improved over the past two years, both at the dish and behind the plate. So uh, I do imagine a platoon, especially for these new starters, uh, now that Quintana is sort of out of the fold in the beginning, but they they still have obviously Senga and uh, Verlander, who will still need to adjust to their new battery. So I think in that way, it's easier uh, with some of these established catchers. And that was a smart move by the by the Mets to to have them sort of ready to go and not forcing Alvarez into a starting opening day starting catcher role because the Mets don't think he's ready uh, defensively. Obviously, his bat looks major league ready. Uh, he did struggle hitting a triple A when he uh, was promoted last year, but generally uh, he uh, even in spring and his attitude and the star power, all of that and his bat. Uh, looks ready to go. But the Mets are saying anyway that they're not going to call him up just to be their DH. Uh, they really want him to develop both defensively and keep hitting and see some results there at AAA before they just call him up. So whether that's true or not, we'll see as it unfolds. I think it, all it really takes is uh, their DH struggling between Daniel Vogelbach and uh, Darren Ruff. If one of those two are really unproductive for the first few weeks of the season, even I, I it's hard to imagine uh, either Alvarez or Mark Vientos or someone, some younger prospect here getting called up to help that lineup out. And while we're talking about prospects who made their major league debuts last year, how and where will Brett Beatty fit in? Yeah, Brett Beatty is another one. I think he's out of the three prospects that we've been really looking at between Brett Beatty, Alvarez, and Mark Vientos. Uh, I really see Beatty being the most consistent. He's working really hard at, at third base. Uh, of course, the problem is he has a block at third base by Eduardo Escobar. And uh, the Mets are still paying Escobar, of course, lots of money to play for them this year. But this is another scenario where uh, I think if Escobar has more of his slips, more slips than surges, I can 
see Brett Beatty sliding right in, getting that call up and going at third base. I don't see as much Beatty transitioning to the outfield in case Eduardo Escobar is staying, has a hot bat at third base. I think they just prefer Beatty to stay at third base and that's his opportunity. But the Mets are banking on Escobar to kind of pick up where he left off last year uh, with his hot September. So if he can do that, uh, it really puts Beatty in a, in a tougher position as to where he will really help out. But again, these are the Mets and there's always injuries on the horizon. So for me, I really see these three prospects uh, having a really good shot at pretty soon or even middle of the season uh, joining this, this big league roster. So one guy who isn't new, but will be around for a long time is Brandon Nimmo. Take us through the, the re-signing process for him. Was there ever really a danger that he was going to be somewhere else come opening day? Nimmo's actually an interesting one because it never got as far as it did with like someone like Aaron Judge, right? Where he's really taking fielding offers from other teams who kind of you knew he would end up where whichever team is giving him the most money, except for the Padres, like obviously Judge didn't go there. But with Nimmo, he had stated his desire from the last day of the regular season last year when he was about to hit free agency that this was the place that he knows. He stayed in his uniform after that final out for hours after. And uh, he was kind of walking around the field, taking it in, pretty emotional. And it just, I mean, there's so many differences between how Brandon Nimmo entered that final game of the season versus some of the Mets' other free agents. And uh, he definitely seemed most attached to the Mets organization from the get-go. So he did entertain offers from the Blue Jays, uh, but really, this was it was Mets. It was Nimmo to lose, and I think he knew that. So uh, it worked out in both ways. I think now looking at this Mets lineup, imagining Nimmo not there as that top of the lineup table setter is is unimaginable. So uh, really good on both sides for getting that worked out. But really, it seemed like from the beginning, it was expected that that he would come back to the Mets. I think Steve Cohen said in early December, this was maybe after they had missed out on Carlos Correa when it looked like he was going to be a giant, but before it looked like he was going to be a Met. <laughs> Cohen said, my team is good, but it isn't that much better than last year. And that was, I think, the big thing about the Carlos Correa edition was not just that it was Carlos Correa, but that it was purely additive, whereas most of the other money they spent this offseason or the players they added were either keeping their own guys like Brandon Nimmo or offsetting some departure, right? So it's really exciting that you get Justin Verlander, but you lost Jacob deGrom and <laughs> Taiwan Walker and Chris Bassett. And, you know, that's why you go get his, Jose Quintana or you bring in some of these bullpen arms, but you lose Seth Lugo and, and other relievers, etc. So that was the one case where it looked like, oh, we didn't lose anyone. We might just add someone. And we already have Francisco Lindor for that <laughs> matter. And we're getting one of the best shortstops. So given that the Correa signing didn't actually pan out, is that basically the evaluation of the Mets this year compared to last year? It's it's good, but it isn't that much better, which is not a bad thing because that was a really good Mets team, even though they ended up being overtaken by the Braves. They still won 101 games. Right. It's so hard to assess sort of how if the Mets can even repeat their one-on-one uh, win season, and, and it didn't feel like it was even 101 wins last year because the Braves were constantly breathing down the Mets' neck, and that was sort of the best they could do, and it's going to be really hard to even repeat it, but they're trotting out 
the same lineup. And this was a lineup that was top five in baseball last year. So you could expect them to have uh, similar results again, but that's the thing. Will it be enough? And if you look around, obviously in the NL East, uh, it's going to be very tough for the Mets and they know this. I think uh, it's more at this point of a mentality aspect for them in spring of knowing no matter what in September, it's going to be a three dog race between them, Braves and Phillies. And it's just a matter of being in that mix, uh, no matter what, and whether that is from now their lineup having to step up and kind of overtake some of these bullpen struggles and the injuries, then maybe that's the way. But I really, I, I don't see this obviously even without Correa. Uh, this lineup being a problem for them, especially with the way that Francisco Lindor has been hitting already in spring and the WBC. A lot of, obviously, fan base and men's Twitter predicting he's going to have an MVP season. Uh, But I think this he's a big factor in uh, what the Mets lineup can do on an everyday basis. Uh, Another big X factor in that lineup is Starling Marte. And I think we saw that last year in the last month where he was really struggling with injuries. The Mets lineup really fell off. It, it was not consistent. It, it really looked like it was missing a piece. So I think for me, the, the big keys here are Francisco Lindor playing like ha- how he has at the WBC completely out of his mind and uh, Starling Marte staying off the injured list and uh, just staying productive. I like that he doesn't try to do too much at the plate. He just kind of is up there, is looking for a hit. And it's not even so much his speed right now that is is such of a factor. I think he just needs to keep hitting. And of course, there's like Pete Alonso uh, with the only like slugger that they have. But I really don't see that being the the big factor for this lineup. I think I would place it more on, on guys like Lindor and Marte who are productive for them every day. Cohen also said, if you want a team that's good, this is what it costs. What are you going to do? And he said, no one likes to spend money, but this is the price. (laughs) So I think there was some understanding that this might have to be the price if he immediately wanted to vault into the ranks of contenders and favorites because there just wasn't a a great infrastructure built up in a player development pipeline and a farm system and he would have to spend on free agents. Do you think that he's okay continuing to do that indefinitely? Or even though he has all the money in the world, it sounds like he would still prefer to spend less of it. So how important to him do you think that is to make the Mets continue to be a strong contender but get the payroll down? Does he care about that much? Yeah, I think he definitely cares a lot about it, especially at spring training this year. It felt like he was sending a message to the other owners of, look, I'm not going to do this every year. Yes, I have the highest payroll. If we if they had added Korea, it would have been uh, a ridiculous payroll. But even then, um, he's kind of trying to tell the league, I'm not going to be this big spender every year. It is just until the farm system can supply what we need at the major league level. But the Mets farm system is years away from doing that. They're, they're making progress. It's good that they have that mindset and that direction. But uh, they're nowhere close. So I can definitely see Cohen kind of saying these comments to the league. I'm not going to be that big spender of a year. But in reality, uh, if he wants to make his team competitive and a contender, especially now, their, their World Series are bust. And the Edwin Diaz injury might be a bigger hit to that. They might already have to start looking ahead of what they can do in, in next year while they still have Scherzer and Verlander on the team. Uh, so in that way, I think these next few years for, for Steve Cohen's Mets are going going to be huge for them. This is their window. 
it's his window. When he first bought the Mets, he said he wanted a World Series within three to five years of his uh, owner, first years of his ownership. And now he says he kind of regrets saying that publicly, but definitely <laughs> he, he still believes it. And, and that would put the Mets at winning uh, really this next year or the, or the year after. So, yeah, I think he is going to continue spending for these next few years. I don't think that's his long term goal. Uh, he doesn't, even though like 17.5 billion net worth seems crazy to even imagine. Uh, he has shown that he wants to hold back a little there, uh, only even if it's just to not keep getting in trouble by the league. Like he doesn't want to see the Steve Cohen tax or more of that going, but, but it, he'll do it for his team for now just to see uh, how far they can actually go if they can actually win this thing. Spring training is a time for the narrative of guys being in the best shape of their life. <laughs> and two of the guys who you might apply that to this spring are Pete Alonso and Daniel Vogelback, both of whom have slimmed in a noticeable way. And I never quite know what to make of this because it's not as if either of those guys struggled at the plate last year, right? And a lot of a lot of their game is tied up in the power. So what was the thinking here? Is this just about injury prevention? Are they trying to optimize something else? What led to to the reduction here? Yeah, I think it definitely has to do with injury prevention. Um, this is something I started working on in spring and hope to continue in the regular season of exactly why. Uh, but this is a team-wide directive here. It wasn't just, yeah, we've seen results from Pete Alonso and Vogelbach in losing like 20, 30 pounds, so it's pretty obvious. But uh, Guillaume also lost a little weight. And and really, this was uh, Tomas Nito. He looks more uh, fit and a, a little stronger. So I asked Nito if this was something that uh, the Mets conditioning staff told the whole team this offseason. And he said, yes, they've really been working hard uh, all winter uh, as a team. So yeah, this is definitely going more toward injury prevention. I am interested to see exactly how this will pan out, like you mentioned, for the sluggers, uh, because they rely on their power so much. And I know Pete Alonso in particular, and, and guys like Jeff McNeil, they, they get in their head a lot. Uh, so it, it would be obviously nice if they didn't have to get in their head about all of their conditioning, their mechanics, and just short, sort of show up at the plate ready to go and just know that they'll hit. But it seems like more this Mets team as a whole is uh, sort of trending more toward looking inward at all of their uh, analytics, mechanics, whether it's conditioning. Um, and really, this is a, a Mets organization that hasn't done that uh, for years, especially under the Will Pond era. So I think in a way, it's good that that some of these players as an organization, they're paying attention to some of these factors. Of course, it's it's great to hydrate and all of that, which is like some of their their directive. But but I do wonder if it's a little too much, and and they're forgetting um, to just play and and hit. I wanted to ask because we were talking about Beatty and Alvarez and some of the younger guys who were around, and the Mets farm system ranking has improved. But I think when Cohen put the goal out there of becoming Dodgers East, basically that does suggest that you are continually developing new talent and making players better. Have you seen progress when it comes to their player development system or their ability to recommend tweaks to improve players? I mean, how close are they to that goal of being able to develop a lot of talent internally without spending all of Steve Cohen's money, even though he has it to spend? Yeah, I think they've made a lot of changes and really it's the the littlest improvements are going to be tenfold with this organization because uh, they had just not paid attention to their minor leagues be, beyond just 
uh, appointing a coaching staff and saying, okay, let's go. Uh, so now I think it's more of they have directives, especially in the minor leagues, they understand it's more of a, a professional organization is really the only way I can describe these changes. But again, regardless of what they want to do, the goals that Steve Cohen has set, uh, they, they are far off from becoming that Dodgers East. Uh, the Dodgers have cultivated that type of organization for years and the Mets are only two, three years into it and really just just at the start. Uh, so it's it's really good that the, the Mets obviously are uh, flashing this brighter future, uh, but there's really nothing coming from the minor leagues in that way at the start. They do have, of course, the string of top prospects who are almost major league ready, but once these guys graduate, uh, there's the, the Mets farm system really, really plummets uh, in the rankings. Uh, when you compare them to the rest of the league, they're more like 29 or 30th. Uh, but with these guys, with Beatty, uh, Vientos, Alvarez, uh, they're they're more of in the middle of the pack. It's going to take them a while to get back up those rankings, but really all, all you can do, right, is, is have an owner and have that money to spend time, technology, to make that system overall better. Since you started covering the Mets in the Wilpon era, I, I wonder what other big picture changes you see in just in how the organization is run. I, I guess it takes some time to overcome the Lowell Mets reputation and the idea that all the Mets get hurt. And every time something terrible befalls a Met, I think we still kind of mentally add it to that vision of the Mets as sort of this uh, bumbling, you know, star-crushed organization. But they have gone a long way toward changing that. And obviously last year with the success that they had in Buck Showalter running things, they were not only good, but I think much less often a laughingstock in the way that they used to be. So have they deserved to shed that reputation entirely? And what have been the major changes that you've seen when it comes to just kind of competence or professionalism? (laughs) Yeah, I think exactly. That's exactly what it is. Like when I started on the beat, we're we're talking about Mickey Calloway at catcher, Brody (laughs) Van Wagner at G. It's almost like comical to, to look back on it. It really was a clown show. And then, of course, Zach Scott getting a DUI. So so all of these, of course, were scenarios and instances that led to that unprofessionalism. But really, they, they truly all took place before uh, Steve Cohen uh, was at the helm. For the most part, he did leave Zach Scott on when he first came on. But I think the biggest, biggest change for me, of course, is not just on a day-to-day basis. There's really less of a factor of a sinister or, or shady vibe from just employees in general, um, or always kind of having uh, that factor factor of whom maybe they're not fully being honest or or telling the truth. Of course, every team is like that. But uh, the bigger change for me is is their handling of leaks. And uh, I think it's really calmed down uh, since it from the Wilpon era. And this is a big part to Billy Epler. He tries to really uh, keep things quiet on that front. He'll still have some of his lieutenants sort of go out and and talk to reporters anyway, but he's he's trying to minimize that aspect of it, and also just their communications. They're they're more of a a team, a concerted effort of how they're getting news out. Uh, it used to be some reporters would get calls first and then the rest of the reporters even on the beat would just completely be left in the dark and this is just because of one person's decision and and it really was just not the way most MLB teams do it so now it really feels like people with experience are running the organization and uh, they're all sort of moving together uh, rather than one person being sinister holding them back or messing up or being unprofessional Uh, there's more of a standard 
uh, involved. And I think that it, it's weird to say because it's such a low bar, but but really for the Mets, that's that's really all they needed to to even get that ball rolling in the right direction. A low bar, but such an important one to clear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to return to the player dev question for a second, just because, you know, you mentioned they have all these high profile prospects and once they graduate, the, the system is going to look different. I, I'm struck also by the fact that, you know, depending on um, whether you would rank uh, Senga as a prospect, which, you know, we did just because it's useful yeah. um, to have him in our top 100 as a level setting thing. Um, but I'm struck by the fact that all of their top prospects, at least at Fangraphs, are position players. I know that uh, pitching development in particular has been um, at times an area where they have lagged. I think about a guy like Paul Seawald who left the Mets and then really blossomed with Seattle. When it comes to pitching dev in particular, have you noticed a, a sea change there? Have there been tweaks in approach? Are there new staff members? How are they trying to think about advancing um, their program there? I really haven't seen a targeted uh, approach to starting pitching, which is not just surprising, but a little concerning. Uh, I remember this spring training, um, uh, Billy Epler at one point uh, reached out to his coaching staff, scouts, analysts, everyone, his front office involved in the organization and sort of asked which area in the minor leagues is the weakest. And I was shocked. It was like, excuse me, everyone and their mother knows which area in the minor, Mets minor league is the weakest. Uh, so whether he was even just kind of saying that to us to get his thoughts together, whether it was true, it, it's concerning that the Mets are not already just starting from that point of, like you mentioned, they, they all of their top prospects, none of them are, are starters. And even then, uh, none of them are really pitchers you can even hang your hat on or uh, be super excited about you can there's definitely a stretch there's some guys like uh, Dominic Hamill has been exciting to watch but again he's only been in high A is his highest level so the Mets are definitely far off from from having that that starting pitching depth and more of a pool that they had years ago when we saw sort of DeGrom coming up Syndergaard and that that famous picture mass of everyone sort of lined up and ready that has been definitely missing and of course it's because of trades uh, it's because of the mess that the Mets had been prior to Cohen so it's a super shallow uh, pool there and and they definitely have a lot of work I to answer your question no I, I haven't seen a, a direct focus on improving it, uh, which is a little concerning, but also they, they could just be looking at it realistically and practically of what well, we have nothing to do here until these guys improve and, and really just develop. So it, it could be a, a sort of a mix of both. Carlos Beltran, who was the Mets manager for about two and a half months, at least nominally, never got to manage a game before the sign-stealing allegations came out. He was hired by the Mets as a special assistant earlier this winter, and he was Mets manager prior to Cohen buying the team, prior to Epler coming in, so maybe I'm reading too much into this, but is there any chance that Beltran could manage a game for the Mets someday, that he could potentially be Showalter's heir apparent, and, and that's that's part of why they brought him in here? I mean, Showalter obviously seems to be doing a fine job, and he has a couple of years left on his contract, so I wouldn't think anything imminent could happen, and it might be completely disconnected. But I wonder whether that's crossed anyone's mind. Yeah, and I and I think it's sort of a real possibility for when Showalter's contract is up. 
uh, for it to be a, a real competition between Carlos Beltran and uh, Eric Chavez, who is currently uh, the Mets bench coach and sort of already that uh, traditional manager in in training just by being in this role this year. Uh, but like you said, that Steve Cohen grew up a Mets fan. He's even before his ownership, he had a close eye on the Mets and he knows exactly the kind of person, the player that Car- Carlos Beltran is. And I can definitely see uh, that being more of a favoritism aspect there if that time were ever to come. I thought uh, Beltran's answer when asked earlier this month uh, whether he is still open to managing for any MLB team in the future, uh, he pretty much said, yeah, he, he's open to it. But he also doesn't, he's kind of just going to any team that will take him right now because Beltran just wants to stay relevant and and hopefully in a, in a good way after, of course, his uh, Astros scandal, uh, becoming Mets manager for like 37 days and then leaving. So I think he is really just on this path of like, I have to be a good boy. Um, but sure, if manager happened, he would definitely take it. And of course, he's in an organization where uh, fans would be at this point definitely excited about it. I think the Astros stuff, especially for the Mets fan base is completely behind them. Uh, so yeah, I can see down the road and we're talking in just a, a couple short years, uh, a potential competition there for manager between Beltran and uh, Eric Chavez. So we always end these segments by asking what would qualify as a successful season for the team we're talking about. And I think you used the phrase World Series or bust earlier in the segment. So maybe it's sort of simple in the Mets case, since Steve Cohen kind of laid it all out there when he bought the team. But is there anything else we could say about individual metrics we could use to gauge whether they're making progress, whether this is a successful season, given that only one of the 30 teams can actually win the World Series? I mean, not really, right? I guess like it, it is World Series or bust for sure. But even to get to that point, the Mets have a really, really tough road just by being up against the the Braves and the Phillies uh, in this big divisional race that I think should be very similar to last year, if not uh, even more competitive for the Mets just because of where the Phillies ended up. So uh, I think that part of it, if you want to look at something that you could be excited about during the season is, is really just that is, is staying competitive. It, it's weird to be looking at standings in April or May, but it could be just as simple as that. If the Mets really fall 10, 15 games behind uh, the Braves or Phillies early in the season, that's going to be much of the focus because everyone knows that sort of the the end goal here is World Series or bust. Uh, I think the Mets fan base is uh, already in that mindset of who even knows if we'll go that far, but like, let's enjoy the ride while it happens, while there are all these stars. Uh, But for Steve Cohen, he he spent all this money. You really don't want to have the most expensive team finishing second or third in the division. And and really, it's easy to imagine, especially last year's Mets, if they were in a different division, having more of a positive narrative around them, not so Braves are always breathing down their neck uh, type of narrative. I think they would excel, obviously, if they were like in the Midwest somewhere. But uh, that's not the case. And, and they're going to have a tough road. So they sort of know, I think, that that's the challenge. And I think that's the the key part, right? As long as everyone understands it's World Series or bust, then uh, it, it's not as easier said than done, but but at least uh, they have the same, the same mindset as everyone else in New York following this team. And given that Cohen was willing to add Correa to the roster, I assume it's safe to say that the Mets will be in the market for help at the trade deadline if necessary? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of that has to do with how these young stars pan out and whether the Mets are going to make that decision to call some of them up. I think it has to happen exactly for that reason, well before the trade deadline. Because if you're sitting on an upgrade within your organization who's raking at AAA, but you kind of just don't even know until July, that's a bad place to be. So I think for that reason, they should really call up uh, as many guys as they can and then assess where they're at uh, at the trade deadline. But definitely, I I would expect the Mets to be in, uh, even though they're trying to hold on uh, to a lot of their guys. But they, they, again, Brett Beatty could be just as uh, helpful as a trade piece as he would be uh, as a third baseman for them. So they're they're in an okay spot over there. They just have to kind of play their cards right uh, leading up to, to that point. All right. Disha Thosar covers the Mets as well as the Yankees for Fox Sports and Baseball at Large. I guess there are a lot of similarities between the New York teams these days. They kind of both have uh, talented but injured rotations and, and talented young position players they're trying to find fits for in the lineup. So yeah, it must be interesting to write about those two right now. A lot of parallels. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. It's definitely not slow. Yeah. yeah, you can find Disha writing at Fox Sports and also on Twitter at her name, Disha Thosar. Thank you very much, Disha. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Well, I joked at the top of this segment that we would try to preview the Mets before any more Mets got hurt. I'm not sure if we succeeded because well after we recorded and shortly before we were about to post this episode, Brandon Nimmo hurt his right ankle. At first, it appeared to be his right knee, which was the one Diaz hurt. Would you believe the poetic injustice of that? I guess that would have been a bit too on the nose or on the knee. So it's the ankle. This happened in a spring training game, not a WBC game. Yes, guys get hurt in the Grapefruit League, but he had an awkward slide into second base, looked like his spike caught. So he's having imaging done on Saturday. To paraphrase Governor Ritchie from the West Wing, bodies. Boy, I don't know. Anyway, we will take a quick break and we'll be back with our second segment. Matt Kawaharo will join us to preview the Oakland Athletics. Listen to the discontent. Men of a naked room. That needs a look just like the ads. And she feels so lonely when she's surrounded by her friends. And she wonders if she even really Okay, we covered the highest of payrolls. Now it's time to turn our attention to the lowest of payrolls. It's time to talk about the Oakland Athletics. And to do that, we are joined by Matt Kawahara, who covers the A's for the San Francisco Chronicle. Hello, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me on. Happy to have you. So last year, Dennis Eckersley, Red Sox broadcaster, took some flack when the Red Sox played the Pirates and Eck made some comments about the lack of name recognition of the members of the Pirates roster. He said, you talk about a no-name lineup. There's no team like this. I'd love to see some of the service time when you add it all up. It's not much. He went on to call the Pirates a hodgepodge of nothingness (laughs) and some other comments that were kind of harsh. Maybe he took it too far. He could have been more politic, maybe. But there was a kernel of truth to what he was saying. And maybe it's for the best that Eck retired before the Red Sox played the 2023 ace (laughs) because he might have had a similar reaction. 
no offense to the players, but the front office and ownership has kind of engineered things these way, this way. So I wonder for you as someone who covers a team with this amount of turnover recently, your job, part of your job is to tell the fans who are still sticking around who these players are and why they should pay attention and why they should have high hopes for particular players. And you yourself have to get to know these guys, a brand new roster every spring seemingly. So I wonder what challenges that brings or whether a, a bigger part of your job than maybe most beat writers is just kind of a getting to know you, you know, here are, here are the Oakland A's, here are the players you need to know this year. Yeah, it's, there's definitely uh, a challenging aspect to it. I, I mean, last season, uh, because there was so much turnover in season, it did seem like there were new players coming in and out um, almost daily or every other yeah. day. They used something like 64 different players, I think, over the course of the season. And, you know, some guys were in for a day or two and back out and you never saw them again. And right. <laughs> at the end, you're looking back at some of the relievers that they used and it was like, who did he pitch? And uh, yeah, so uh, so there was quite a bit of that last season. I think um, this year they've, they've brought in a couple of uh, at least – you know, veterans who have been around the league for a little bit, um, Aledmus Diaz, Jace Peterson, uh, uh, Jesus Aguilar, um, who I think they may not be the household names. Um, they do have at least a little bit more experience than a lot of the, the players that ran through the, the clubhouse last year. Um, but to your point, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's tough for people who are watching this team to really get, um, invested in, in either the team or, or individual players, especially over the last year and a half or so, just because there has been, so much turnover. And I, I do, I think there is probably a kernel of hope that some of the younger players who are in the system right now are going to be maybe the next, that next group, that next core, uh, that could boost them back into contention a little bit, but that's a, a little ways away still. And they're still right. young. They're still kids. So, so at this point, yeah, there is a, a definite, uh, aspect of sort of anonymity, um, yes. in the clubhouse this year, but, and it's, it's between the players too. I mean, they, for the first week or so, everybody was introducing themselves to each other. Just and like icebreakers and trust falls. and <laughs> Yeah, figuring out who they are. Um, there's so many new guys. Uh, but, you know, at this point, it's been, you know, four or five weeks. And I think it, there are still some roster questions to be answered. But I think yeah, at this point, everybody has probably at least introduced themselves to each other by now. Right. Yeah, I was going to say you might need name tags, but I guess if you're baseball <laughs> players, you have your name on the back of the uniform. You have nameplates in the clubhouse. So. Yeah, over the clubhouse definitely helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what was the strategy then behind the imports that they do have the more established players? Because this is a rebuild. It is a youth movement, but there are some 30-somethings here, as you said, and, and some have been there for a little while. Some new additions, you know, your Trevor Mays and your Diaz's, as you said, or Jace Peterson. And not that it's a new phenomenon for the A's to go get veterans who are maybe on the backside of their career at times. But is this more about respectability, about providing some players people know? Not that Aledmus Diaz is necessarily selling tickets exactly, <laughs> but, you know, just kind of at least making a show of trying to put a somewhat known or respectable or competitive team out there? Or is this a bid for midseason trades? Or is it about mentoring and veteran leadership? I think you hit on all of them right there. <laughs> but I mean, respectability, the word that you said, I, I do think that that is a big aspect of it because last year was a rough one. Um, and they, I mean, there was, there were essentially sort of tryouts uh, happening at the major league level. And 
uh, and it was just an, a non-competitive season, pretty much from start to finish. And I don't think, I mean, even though this, you know, this is an organization that has gone through rebuilds and everybody knows about, you know, how they operate and their payroll and everything, but I don't think the way that they were just non-competitive in a good amount of games and series last year sat well with, uh, with people in the organization. I just don't think it sat well. So, so I think there was an element of just wanting to bring in guys that have some sort of major league track record to, I don't know. I don't even know. If bolster the lineup is the right way to put it, but you know, at least at least have that sort of stability there, where they they have some veterans in the lineup, and they feel like maybe they're going into games where they can hang uh, a little bit, while also bringing in some of the younger guys and seeing what they can uh, contribute at this stage. And then another thing that you pointed out was just looking toward the future and some some of the younger names that they do have in here, having that sort of mix. And having who they consider to be good clubhouse guys, Aguilar is, are, has already kind of come into the clubhouse, and he's he seems like a pretty loose, pretty fun-loving guy. He seems to have taken a fair amount of the sort of the, the younger Latin players under his wing. Um, Peterson is kind of in the middle of the clubhouse all the time, even though he's a bit of a quieter guy. And I think that's sort of a big thing for them as well, because there are younger players in in the clubhouse right now, and they they need a little bit of guidance. Uh, Diaz is. It seems a little bit quieter, but has been on you know, Astros teams that have won World Series, and I think they find some sort of value in that uh, clubhouse leadership aspect. So, so it's a little bit of all the things that you mentioned. Uh, I mean, like, like you said, it's it's probably year two of a of a significant rebuild, and I don't think that they brought in those players thinking, hey, this is how we're going to get back and compete in the AOS again this year. But but there was some strategy behind it. Well, and part of that rebuild, at least this offseason, was shipping out Sean Murphy, which I think is a trade that has confounded effectively wild in a number of ways. <laughs> I don't know how you trade away Sean Murphy and don't end up with William Contreras <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're engaged in a trade with Atlanta. Um, can you walk us through how that came about and sort of what they see in Estuary Ruiz? Because I think that part of what has surprised people about the return that they got from Murphy is that the public side of the industry, at least, is it's not that Ruiz isn't a good player, but he's not the guy you'd expect to get in return for Sean Murphy. So how did this all come about from Oakland's perspective and what are their expectations for Ruiz this year and then going forward? Yeah, I mean, to the Contreras point, I think one reason that they felt like they could make the move was because of Shea Langoliers and because they felt like he's ready to be the guy for them, uh, so the primary catcher for them. So getting a Contreras in, in that sort of a deal would have muddled the picture even more. And catcher is maybe the <laughs> maybe the one area of their system where they have a fair amount of depth um, with you know, a couple of options coming up through the minors. So in a way, this was partly clearing the way for Langlers to become the primary guy this year, although uh, I, I know there were a lot of questions about the return that they got. It They they like Ruiz. Ruiz is a bit of, uh, of a compounding player just because he has been traded a, like multiple times in the last year. The A's really like him. They see him as a potential everyday center fielder, which is something that they need because the potential everyday center fielder that they got a year ago in another trade with the Braves <laughs> hasn't really panned out. Um, and, you know, Pache is, Christian Pache is out of options this spring. He's bidding to make the, the roster as a reserve outfielder, but, um, but they don't have sort of a center fielder of the future coming up through the system. And they've you know decided that Ramon Laureano, who might not be around much longer anyway, is a better fit in right field. 
and they feel like they need a, a long-term option in center, and they think Ruiz could be that guy. Uh, whether he, I don't. People kind of looked at uh, his his minor league numbers in different ways, um, especially last year when he had sort of a breakout year. Like, is is he actually going to be able to hit for power in the major leagues? That's a question. Uh, I think there was some attention paid to sort of his exit velocities and hard hit rates in the minors. I, I don't think certain members of the, in the A's thought that that was that big of a concern. They have pretty high hopes for him. Whether his whether defensively he can handle that position, they seem to be optimistic about it so far this spring, but there haven't been a whole lot of Cactus League uh, instances where he's been really tested out there, and center field is kind of a uh, it's it's kind of a new position for him anyway. I mean, that wasn't his primary spot until I think either last year or 21 after he sort of flamed out as an infielder. So for, for him to be sort of the key guy in there, uh, it's, there is definitely some questions still, but they, they also like, uh, that they, they like Kyle Muller. They think he could be a plug into the rotation, uh, right away, um, type of player. So, uh, it, the, the A's in, in the past, as you guys know, I mean, they have, done these types of trades where it will be one significant player from their roster and they're you know they go in for three or four guys in the return and um you know i think we're hoping hoping that one or two or if not all of them will will pan out so there's a quantity aspect as well but i they do seem to be optimistic about ruiz yeah you brought up the the catching depth and i wanted to ask about that because langoliers is great I, i'm curious sort of what the org views as the future of tyler sawstrom because he is ostensibly a catcher but at least in the spring action i've seen of him he's he's looked a little rough back there so do you do you imagine that he will have an eventual big league role as a backup or do you think you might see a shift to first base out of him i think a shift is not out of the question uh by any means especially because I mean, you look at first base, and there aren't, there isn't really a, a clear-cut first baseman coming up through the system either. At least not on the on the on the edge of the majors. This is going to be an interesting thing, actually, kind of in the short term, because uh, it was just announced this morning. Actually, Manny Pena, who was another guy that came over in the Murphy trade and was going to be their backup catcher, is going to start the season on the injury list. Um, he's got some lingering effects in the wrist that he had surgery on last year. So they immediately need a backup catcher, and they don't have very many that have major league experience. There's Joel Pozo, who has like 21 games with Texas two years ago. And then there's Soderstrom and Kyle McCann, and those two guys have um, a handful of games above double-A. We asked Mark Kotze specifically about Soderstrom this morning, uh, whether he could be an option, and the, the Kotze's answer was a, a pretty strong indication that they feel like development is more important than accelerating him to the major leagues right now. So... I think there's a better chance that he'll start at AAA. As for the future, they still seem to be optimistic about the potential that he could catch. But I agree with you. I mean, there have been some some games uh, this spring where he's looked handcuffed on balls. He he hasn't really looked that great blocking behind the plate. And you can look at it two different ways. I mean, he's still 21. Last year, he didn't catch as much as he probably would have if he didn't have a uh, an injury for a little bit, and that kind of bumped him over to play some more games at first base. If I had to guess, I would think that between not being the at this point maybe the soundest catcher defensively in their system, and also the potential that just as a hitter that he would bring to the lineup, that it would be a smoother, maybe an easier way to get him up uh, quicker if he comes up as uh, a guy that plays maybe more first base and can catch every once in a while, maybe. Uh, maybe DH a little bit, but they definitely have not ruled out catching uh, as a feature. 
And since you brought up the rest of the outfield situation, Pache was playing some left this week, right, with Ruiz mm-hmm. in center, which if Ruiz could handle center and you had Pache in left and Loriano in right, that would at least be a very solid defensive outfield. Mm-hmm. So is that a possibility or do you see him more as a fill-in fourth outfielder defensive replacement type? And then with Loriano, he's almost the last man standing, at least on the position player side from the roster that was torn down, I assume, because the suspension and injuries just made it hard for the A's to get much value for him. So is this still sort of uh, hoping he reestablishes himself in the first half and then he'll be shipped out to? I think they do definitely hope that he reestablishes himself because there was suspension and injuries and plus he had the worst season of his career last year. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think, you know, if, if that hadn't happened, if he had had a better year, then there was definitely a good chance that he could have been moved at the, um, at the deadline last season, but they weren't getting the offers that they wanted for him. But to the, the general outfield picture, I think uh, having Pache out in left field yesterday was, both uh, a chance for them to be if he makes the club as as a uh, sort of a reserve outfielder that fourth guy um there there's a good chance that he would need to play the corners so i think they wanted to get him a little uh, look there but there's also Seth Brown is probably going to be the primary left fielder but they you know this is a team that likes their platoons so they would probably be looking for a right-handed um hitting option that they could maybe plug in there every once in a while and if Pache shows that he can handle left then then he could be an option there so that was really interesting to see yesterday. I know the the general consensus is if you if you can handle center, then you can handle the corner spots. But it's a little bit of an adjustment uh, shifting over to the angles, um, and they seem to think he looked pretty comfortable there yesterday. So they're definitely keeping that that possibility open. I mean, when spring started, when we asked uh, Marcotte about Apache's situation, I mean, the the tone of his initial answer was seemed pretty pessimistic. I mean, he said something about. Pache auditioning this spring for 29 other teams, which was like, oh, I don't know what that says about his, uh, <laughs> his chances of making the, making the roster. But now, but now he's getting a ton of at-bats, um, and yeah, they're moving him around. And I think it's become much more of a possibility that he, he will open with them. Well, we talked about Soderstrom. I'm curious amongst their their other position players and the high minors, you know, as they maybe move on from some of these veterans at the deadline, if they're able to trade them for prospects, who are some of the guys who A's fans might see at the big league level at some point this year? Yeah, I think Zach Eloff uh, would be sort of the next. Him and Soderstrom are probably the the two guys that are maybe on closest on the edge. And uh, Geloff, they're, they're Pretty high on uh, just kind of as an all-around guy. He, he They drafted him as a third baseman out of college. He moved over to second, uh, which is, you know, again, another position where they've had sort of a revolving door in recent years. So if they were to, you know, have some stability there, that would uh, that would be helpful. He's pretty athletic, which is, you know, a factor for now that you can't uh, can't shift as much uh, to have that kind of element at second base. Um, they just, they kind of really like him all around and uh, probably there's a good chance he would start at AAA this season and potentially debut at some point um, this year. So he he's definitely one. Uh, Jordan Diaz, who came up last year for maybe a couple of weeks and is probably one of the more polished just, uh, hitters, contact hitters in, in the system, um, is definitely kind of right there. His, I mean, for him, defense has been the question about where he fits in. Uh, on the infield, third base has, has not gone well in the minors. They used him a little bit at second last season, and yeah, that was shaky too. Uh, so they they asked him to sort of get uh, get in better shape, work on his agility and his footwork over the offseason. They seem to be 
fairly optimistic about what, what he was able to do. So he's, he's probably not going to open with them, uh, looks like, but it is, it's a definite option to be there, uh, at some point again this year. Um, I would say, uh, out of the prospect list, uh, at least on the position player side, those are probably the three. What, what, one guy who looked great in spring and his, uh, his time was Lawrence Butler, who's, um, and he had a good showing in the Arizona Fall League last year. Um, made a huge jump in the minors coming out of the pandemic uh, in in 21, and it seems like his uh, his trajectory is is pretty good. Uh, but he hasn't played, uh, I don't think, above uh, either high A or double A. So um, he he was sent out of major league camp, but but they really like what they saw out of him. So I don't know if this year is likely, but you know if he if he's at double A, they have shown in the past that they're they're not against you know, calling up a player from AA. I think they called Diaz up from AA last year. So um, so he's definitely moving up as well. So let's transition to pitching. It'll be a while before we get some sense of uh, who got the better of the Murphy-Ruiz-Contreras trade, but the early returns at least seem to be favorable for the A's in the Montas-Turbino trade, or at least they're not so favorable for the Yankees, we can say that much. So a large portion of the A's staff and rotation is made up of guys they got from the Yankees in this trade. So tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, Waldchuk is somebody they're, they're obviously high on. Um, his transition over was a little bit, I guess, rocky at the end of last season, but uh, I think his last two two or three starts of the season were, were pretty strong. His early spring uh, outings didn't look very good, but they kind of told him over the offseason just the way that he put it was he's, he's gone into previous springs kind of ready, like locked and, locked and loaded, ready to go. And they told him to ease off a little bit this offseason just to make sure that, you know, he's coming into camp still building himself up so that late in the season he's kind of got some some gas left in the tank. Um, so that could be one reason for some of the early outings. I don't know. I think coming into spring, if, if he were to handicap it, he had a pretty good shot at opening in the rotation. I don't – he hasn't necessarily helped himself, but I think uh, there's an injury to Paul Blackburn where Blackburn is going to start the season on the I.L., and there's a, there's a clear path for him. It would be it would still be a little surprising if he doesn't open in there. JP Sears, who also came over in the trade, has been probably one of their sharper pitchers uh, this spring. And the the thing with him is because he's also pitched out of the bullpen, and the A's are looking at all, all these different ways to structure their rotation. I mean, it's very it's highly unlikely that they're gonna uh, sort of carry use a, a traditional five man rotation. Um, at least to start and probably at, at any point during the season. So Sears is kind of a swingman type where he could start for them. He could be in the bullpen and, and make it the occasional spot start, or if they were to piggyback starters, he could be that guy as well. Um, so I think both of those those guys will play pretty significant roles for their uh, for their staff this year. And then Luis Medina, who also came over in the trade, has made a couple of uh, spring outings where he, I mean, he's throwing 100 miles an hour, uh, he was throwing 100 in Las Vegas when they played their two games there, and it was cold. It was really 50 degrees, and he's out there throwing 100. So it, his transition last year was was rough. His numbers at Double A were not good, but but they like what they have in the arm. They they still say that they're going to try to develop him for now as a starter. But I mean, you could definitely see that stuff transitioning into the bullpen pretty easily. One of their other off-season additions uh, on a major league contract is coming over from Japan in Shintaro Fujinami. So what should A's fans expect out of him? Yeah, he's, when you heard about this stuff, I guess, in Japan, it was, you know, triple-digit fastball, disgusting splitter. Um, 
he so far he, he's the velocity is definitely there. He's come out and he's thrown 98, 99. Hitters who have seen him have said that the the splitter looks pretty good. He throws probably I would say like six or seven, maybe five or six different pitches, just kind of with the variations of the fastball as well. But you have also definitely seen some of the command issues that w- were present in Japan. I mean, he was yeah kind of a star um, for his first. My understanding is like he because he was drafted out of college and started pitching in the MPB when he was 19 years old. His first three years uh, were really strong. I think he was an All Star MPB All Star the first three seasons, and then he hit those control problems. And um, we've seen a little bit of that for sure, where the command just kind of disappears and he's walked three guys in an inning. He's walked guys back at back to back. Um, and it kind of, it strangely seems to fluctuate. It's not like he'll go out for an outing and that day he just doesn't have command at all. It's like he'll, it'll flip flop, uh, from inning to inning. So I don't know necessarily how that is going to translate over into the season, but, but I, I, I think it's undeniably so far fun to watch. I, I don't, I mean, Montas obviously had, the high velocity, the good splitter, but just in terms of kind of style and I, I don't necessarily know. It's probably going back a little ways to see like this type of pitcher that the A's have had. It's just, uh, it's, it's very interesting. I think it's going to be to see just kind of how, uh, how he translates into the regular season and shooting others a possibility. I don't know how the scheduling will work out, but um, because they open against the angels, even if he doesn't pitch against Shohei Otani on, on opening night, he will probably face Shohei Otani in the Angels lineup at some point during that series. And they have a history going back to high school in Japan where they were sort of viewed as pitching rivals. So that should be fun. So the bullpen was not a bright spot last season. There weren't that many bright spots, really. But this was, uh, I think, the 29th ranked bullpen in the majors, according to Fangraph's War, worst in the American League. Is there hope that it could be better? There are some new faces, at least in the mix this season. Yeah, it's I, I don't know that there's a lot of there's a lot more kind of clarity about how things are going to work down there. I mean, that, there is a question basically all through last season about who's going to close games and that, you know, there weren't a lot of opportunities for them to save wins, but, but there was maybe a one month stretch where Danny Jimenez pitched pretty well as a closer and they, they were thinking, oh, this could be, this could be a guy that we feel comfortable about, uh, about, you know, finishing games for us. And then he had shoulder problems. Um, AJ Puck, he was maybe their most reliable reliever, at least the, the guy that they turned to a lot in the late innings last year, and then they traded him to Miami. Uh, so I I don't think there's going to be a lot of definition of roles going into the season um, because they signed Trevor May, who you mentioned earlier, uh, to um, this contract that makes him their highest paid player. Um, there's probably a, a decent chance that he will, if not, you know, have ninth inning responsibilities, at least you know, be pitching in the highest leverage situations that, that they have. I, I think they did feel pretty encouraged by some of the debut seasons that they got. Like Zach Jackson um, was a guy who, who pitched pretty well for them out of the bullpen for most of the season. Sam Mole, who is a super journeyman, has kind of kicked around and kind of figured something out or at least adjusted his uh, the way that he throws his slider that made him pretty effective for a good amount of last year, especially against left-handed hitters they were able to sort of mix and match at times well but they use those guys a lot and especially early in the season and they kind of wore down toward the end of the year 
And when they're looking at filling out the bullpen, I mean, you're looking at non-roster guys, uh, Drew Steckenreiter, <laughs> Rico Garcia, um, sort of these names that have uh, kicked around a little bit. And um, I mean, it's not going to be probably the biggest strength <laughs> of uh, of the roster, but yeah, it's I, they're, again, they're, they're going to be looking at probably a lot of mixing and matching. I don't know if they're going to have a second left-hander down there, I think there's a, a good chance that because of questions with the rotation and how they're going to, how they're going to handle sort of starting schedules, they could carry one or maybe two starters as sort of swingmen and they'll limit the shorter outing guys that they can, they can have. So I, that's probably the, the one position unit that's still kind of murkiest, I guess with a couple of weeks left before the season starts. Well, you mentioned Puck and the fact that we didn't bring up J.J. Bladet when we were talking about the outfielders or the guys we might see from the minor <laughs> leagues perhaps answers this question uh, on its own. But I'm curious, you know, they brought Bladet over from Miami in that trade, and he had a very rough 2022 season, 72 WRC plus, like struck out a bunch. Is there a plan for trying to help him right the ship, or are they just looking at him as sort of organizational depth at this point? Actually, that, that was probably an oversight on my part, not mentioning Blade. So I'm glad you uh, brought him up. They like him as the, the reasoning that they gave for sending him out uh, sort of in one of the, the earlier waves of cuts from, uh, from spring camp was that they think that he still has the upside or the potential to, to be an everyday player, everyday outfielder. The, the position itself is maybe still a little bit in question, but uh, in terms of specific uh, things that they, they feel like he can uh, hone in on to, to maybe fix some of the, the issues that he had in the minors hitting-wise, that uh, I'm not too sure about, but I think they do they do see sort of potential there. It's, it's kind of the, the upside is the word that they use throughout the spring. Um, the fact that he didn't make, uh, that it doesn't look like he's going to make the opening day roster, I don't know. I, I I don't know that that's necessarily a reflection of you know how they see him long term as much as wanting to give him some time to address things um, in the minors. First of all, so Moneyball turns twenty this summer, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people celebrating or bemoaning the book and looking back at how things have changed. And so I wonder where the A's are analytically as we hit this anniversary. Of course, Billy Bean no longer running day-to-day operations, still on board as a senior advisor to John Fisher. And for a long time now, the A's have been leapfrogged many times over by other teams when it comes to headcount, at least in the analytical side of things. So where do they stand? You know, it used to be that you could say, well, they have a low payroll, but they're finding competitive advantages and they're uh, smarter than some other teams. Is there even any basis for saying that anymore? Yeah, that, I mean, it's definitely a, a good question just because of, like you said, the um, the advances, I think, just around the league. And I want to say that you know, there are a couple of times that, uh, that Billy Bean himself just sort of referenced that it seemed like the rest of the league has sort of caught up on that front and mm-hmm. because of the you know the, the resources that are there for maybe other teams that these are don't necessarily always have maybe have not only caught up but surpassed um i think you know the a's do do what they can um one of the the only addition to their coaching staff this is just a kind of a, a small example but the only addition to their uh their coaching staff this um the major league coaching staff this season is the new 
bullpen slash assistant pitching coach, um, Mike McCarthy, who's uh, a big sort of analytics guy. And I think they, that is something that they hope will sort of provide a bit of a foil and maybe another, uh, perspective, um, along with Scott Emerson, who's been the, the longest tenured coach on the, on their staff and is kind of a more of an old school pitching coach type guy. So in terms of just where they stand in the industry, uh, that I, I'm not, uh, totally sure on i think uh, i think there is reason to think that you know maybe where 20 years ago they were at the forefront of it it's not that case anymore i was sort of surprised actually you you mentioned they added that coach steven vote the way he went out with the a's and how beloved he was it's sort of surprising to me that the mariners hired him as a bullpen and quality control coach especially if the a's were also hiring someone for that position is that surprising that he didn't just stay where he was or or was it more about wanting someone more seasoned who was bringing that analytical edge yeah well vote has uh he lives up in in washington and his um has been there for a long time. I think uh, sort of the being closer to home aspect is probably a big, uh, a big part of it for him personally. He's got a, uh, he's real tied to the Northwest. So I think, I think that was probably a big factor, but, but yeah, the, the, in the McCarthy case, uh, it's sort of both a a hybrid bullpen and assistant pitching where he's, he's kind of honing in on that, that analytic side with the pitchers. Um, And I think they're hoping that 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 adds something too, but it will be weird. Uh, Not that, you know, Ace fans haven't seen Stephen Vogt in, uh, in other uniforms, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was definitely a question at the end of last year, like, what's he what's he going to do? He, there are so many potential avenues for him. He could go into broadcasting. He says he wants to manage someday, and then all of a sudden here he is in a Mariners uniform. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could do an entire podcast on the state of affairs when it comes to the stadium and the eventual home of the A's, whether mm-hmm. they stay in Oakland or relocate. And we don't have time to do that, but can you give us the Reader's Digest version of where things are? And I don't want to make you predict it, but do you, <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to kind of predict it. Like at this at this point, did the the winds feel like they are blowing in Oakland's direction, or might they uh, take on a desert character? Do winds have desert character? Who could say? Are they going to end up in Vegas? I guess is my question. <laughs> it's a dry wind. Is it a dry wind? Dry or, winds. There you is go. It a Bay Area wind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, very descriptive. I think um, the well, I'm sure as you guys saw when uh, when spring training was getting going and the commissioner held his um, his media session in Arizona, uh, he was asked about the, the state of negotiations on both fronts, and uh, he sort of directed the winds toward the Vegas um, Vegas area, where he said like that's that's where the focus has been. And I guess you could look at that either as yes. That's where, like, it's kind of shifting direction toward the A's are putting more of their more of their emphasis on looking at Vegas, or you can look at that as another pressure play and what has been a very long, very long list of trying to, from the both the A's and potentially the league perspective, try to lean on the city of Oakland a little bit, which to this point uh, obviously has not had the the effects that they were hoping for. Um, to our knowledge, I mean, the, the city of Oakland and the A's are continuing to negotiate on the uh, proposed wall, uh, waterfront ballpark development project that they have, uh, that they've been talking about there for a couple few years. Um, there has, there have been sticking points in that that include how the sides are going to cover uh, a fair amount of the sort of offsite infrastructure that is involved in 
the proposal uh, because the ballpark itself, um, as proposed, would be privately funded, but it does include uh, much more in terms of just housing, uh, retail space, public open space, uh, many other aspects of it that are more than just the ballpark, and uh, how to fund certain offsite infrastructure aspects of that um, has been one sticking point. Another that has come up in the past has been um, the amount of affordable housing. There are elements I think that the two sides have just not been able to come to an agreement on to finalize a, uh, a financial development agreement um, that could then go before the city council and either be you know be voted on, approved or not approved. Um, so that has sort of been where things, it, it has kind of been paused at that point for, for months now. And it's been very quiet on both sides, uh, both from the, uh, the ACE president, team president, Dave Cowell was, was very sort of vocal, very visible. Um, I would say up until maybe, maybe seven or eight months ago, maybe a little bit more, um, throughout this, this whole ordeal. And then has, has been very silent, um, during that time. And, uh, so, so it just, it doesn't seem like there has been a whole lot of, of momentum in Oakland. Also, obviously, Oakland had a change um, in uh, in leadership with a new mayor coming in. Libby Schaff, uh, the longtime mayor, uh, was a, was a real proponent, probably the leader leading proponent um, on the city side of getting that project done. And, and it didn't happen during her tenure. Uh, there's a new mayor, Sheng Tao, now in in office. And as of I think it was as of February, the Commissioner Manfred said that he hadn't been in contact with uh, with the new mayor. So. Not sure that that's, uh, that's a positive sign. I don't know um, if that contact has been established um, at some point, but it, uh, since then. Uh, but you know, his his sense at that point, or what he relayed on from what he said were his conversations with John Fisher, the owner of the A's, is that um, you know, it's, it seems like the the focus for for the A's has been more on looking at potential sites um, that they could build a ballpark on in Vegas. Uh, it's been re- reported that they've narrowed it down to two sites or three sites, and there are not a whole lot of specifics there, but I think there is a sense, and there was a sense, especially during the um, the series, the, the two exhibition games that they played there against the Reds uh, earlier this month, um, from the Vegas side at least, that people think that there's a good chance that, that the A's are coming at some point. It doesn't seem to have sort of the structure there uh, that at least, you know, in Oakland that there there is a proposed what it would look like. Um, there's no site settled on in Vegas. There's no plan. There's no, <laughs> nobody has said like, hey, this is how they're going to fund um, a ballpark. We've seen, you know, we saw the, the Raiders move from Oakland over to to Vegas and they, they were given a, a large uh, public funding um element to help build their their stadium uh, which was generated by hotel taxes in Clark County and I it's the, the at least the public statements that have come out of the Vegas area where that there isn't the same appetite to, to kind of dedicate that sort of public funding to um, to the A's if they were to, to move over and, and look to build a new stadium there so so that could be a sticking point there uh, it, it's just continued to there's no I wouldn't say that there's clarity on on either front, um, the only thing that there there is clarity about is that if they don't have a stadium agreement in place, a binding stadium agreement in place somewhere by January 2024, 
um, that the A's lose their revenue sharing status, which was reinstated in the in the new collective bargaining agreement. So that's essentially the, the deadline for them is that they need to have a, an agreement in place somewhere by January 2024. Yeah. And I guess because of that, Dan Moore in his BP annual essay wrote the 2023 campaign might simultaneously be the least competitive yet most consequential season in the history of Oakland A's baseball because it might determine whether there still is Oakland A's baseball in the future. And it's tough, I feel, for the fans because I know they want to support this team. The attendance was the major league's lowest last year, but of course it was because if anything, it seems like ownership is doing a major league-esque Rachel Phelpsian scheme here to repel people. So I guess the only thing worse than watching the currently constructed A's would be losing them. So you're kind of <laughs> stuck in the rock and the hard place here. So it's tough. And we always end by asking basically what would constitute success for this team in the upcoming season. And I guess in the A's case, it's almost all about the ballpark. But if you could make a case for the A's turning out to be more successful, exciting, watchable than expected for fans to come back out to the park, even if they close the concessions or whatever else they do, what do you think <laughs> that would be? How could things potentially take a step forward in Mark Kotze's second season at the helm here? Yeah, I mean, well, this, like as you mentioned, the stadium is kind of the main question that hangs over the years. So, um, but on the field... If they if they do start to bring up some of the kids, or if the kids that they already have up, Shea Langliers, Nick Allen, Asturi Ruiz, if those guys have breakout years, or at least show that they could maybe start to, they could be the start of kind of a new uh, a new course, and just that that group that could help this team be competitive again. I think that would be a big thing uh, for them because they do feel like they have a wave kind of coming up through the system. And if, if eventually this year, if it's not early, if, if maybe in the second half or something, you do see Soderstrom, Geloff, um, some of the other younger guys that, uh, that start to come up there. And if some of the starting pitching, um, that is still going to be under team control for a while, holds its own, uh, I think there, there would be reason to be optimistic about the future, whether that is translates to a, a good, 2023 season i think that's definitely questionable but uh but i think that would be sort of where you're looking uh for a baseline of success all right well if you haven't heard of these oakland days and you would like to then matt is your guy you could find him covering the a's for the san francisco chronicle all season and you can find him on twitter at matthew kawahara thank you very much matt appreciate it yeah thanks a lot all right, so we will wrap up with the Pass Blast, as always, plus some trivia answers. So today's Pass Blast comes to us from 1982 and also from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And David writes, 1982, proto-pitchcom, will it ruin the sport? <gasps> Keep Baseball Sacred was the title of a May 12th, 1982 column written by newspaper columnist Bob Green. In it, Green laments what he believes to be a terrible thing happening to the boys of America. The tragedy Green alludes to was nothing more than an experimental line of new baseball gloves being tested by sporting goods manufacturer Mizuno. One glove featured a polarized see-through webbing that would allow players to shield their eyes from the sun. Whoa. Yeah. 
futuristic. The other model was, as described by Green, a catcher's mitt that has an electronic device built into it. The catcher decides what kind of pitch he wants the pitcher to deliver. Then he presses a button. The signal is electronically transmitted to the pitcher's glove. The pitcher looks down at his glove and his own device tells him what pitch to throw. Mm. Green believes this precursor to Pitchcom to be an abomination, that it would threaten the sacred relationship between one and their first baseball glove. This is unnatural, he wrote. This is wrong. (laughs) Green continued, when a catcher has a message for his pitcher, he is not supposed to send it via electronic impulses. He flashes a few fingers down near the dirt behind home plate and the pitcher, squinting as he stares the distance from the mound, reads those fingers and knows what to do. That is how it has always been. And that is how it was meant to be. (laughs) <laughs> handed down on stone tablets, uh, I guess, although it was not that way from the very, very beginning of baseball, but close enough, I guess. Green concludes by saying that he is sorry for those who grow up in a world in which pitcher and catcher can communicate electronically, ending by suggesting life will be too easy for them and they will miss out on some important life lessons. <laughs> as far as I can tell, David says Green is still alive, still writing. However, he has yet to make his thoughts on MLB's current use of Pitchcom known. And David also noted that Mizuno did make the glove with polarized webbing. It was called the OptiWeb and is kind of cool in David's opinion. I agree. And he links me to that and also to an old Baseball Prospectus article about Mizuno's innovations of the 80s with a fun picture of Tommy Lasorda trying out some of the tech. It seems they wanted to use a similar communication device for managers to send signals to players. And from what David could tell, according to the BP piece, the catcher's mitt does not seem to have made it to market at any time, the Pitchcom model. Apparently, some of the electronics got destroyed by fastballs and broke the thing. (laughs) So they still had some kinks to work out there. But but that was, you know, 40 years before Pitchcom. That was uh, basically the same idea. So we could have saved ourselves a whole sign-stealing scandal if we had implemented that more quickly. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it's interesting because it's like, I guess you'd notice if you could view the catcher not putting down signs. But it's like, you know, this is something that inspires such, like, fury. Like, oh, it's, it's an abomination that they could mm-hmm. communicate electronically. And I wonder, would you notice the abomination, <laughs> you know, if you're sitting in the ballpark and you don't have a view, you're not staring... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say a thing, and I know it's bad. I want mm-hmm. everyone to know that I know, I know. If you're staring literally right, unless you're staring literally right down the dick of the catcher, mm-hmm. would you notice that mm-hmm. they're doing the thing, you know? I guess if it's really loud and he has to, the pitcher has to cup his ear, you know, because the pitch con stuff sometimes is. Right. But I just wonder, you know, would you... Would you notice? No, probably not. I mean, lots of the things that have been forecasted as uh, the death of baseball, which, you know, (laughs) we quoted a little (laughs) of the intro today, right? So who knows? I hope we look back and the economic model for broadcasting is uh, so healthy that that looks alarmist. But very often, and sometimes in these past blasts, it's like, oh, this is the end. (laughs) This is it. This will be the death knell. And now it just looks quaint and 
doesn't seem silly and no one cares at all. So it, probably some of this is uh, for effect and you need some column material, I guess. So you gin something up. But I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at <laughs> the column here and it says, you know, baseball is not about sophisticated equipment. It is about self-reliance and learning how to fend for oneself. I remember when I was first learning to play baseball, I came home one day after an unsuccessful afternoon in the field. I told my father that some of the other boys had fancier, more expensive gloves than mine and that I needed one of those gloves in order to compete with them. His answer, a poor workman blames his tools. Mm. A might rough, it seemed at the time, but in retrospect, it was precisely the correct answer. A man cannot go through life blaming outside elements for his lack of success. If you're going to be any good at something, it's going to be because of what you bring to the endeavor from within yourself, not because of some way you figure to make that endeavor easier. Although, uh, what if it's easier for everyone? What if uh, we right. just make life easier for, for all of us? That wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> it continues, I'm sure the trend here will go against the point of this little essay. Undoubtedly, in years to come, America's playground will be filled with boys wearing gloves with sun shields and gloves with electronic <laughs> signal transmitters. And who knows, maybe even gloves with computers that lead the wearer to precisely the spot in the outfield where the ball is going to drop. Whoa. Yeah. Future stuff. <laughs> it's uh. Yeah, it it says like it doesn't make sense to have a, a sun shield because you're not supposed to have a glare shield. If you're lucky, your baseball cap will help to block the sun. If the cap won't do it, then you can use your hands to keep the sun away until the last moment. And it's uh, basically it says like, well, you're not always going to have a sun shield, so you might as well get used to it. But what if you could always have a sun shield? What if everyone right. had a sun shield? That'd be nice. I, it's kind of the same generational argument you always hear that every generation advances about how the new generation has it easy and is soft, right? And yeah. they don't rough it the way that we did when we were young and we had to walk uphill both ways, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and like, there's probably something to that. Like, there's some truth maybe to things getting easier in some ways with each successive generation. But also, isn't that what we would want to happen? Right. <laughs> like, wouldn't right. we want things to get better and easier yeah. for everyone instead of the whole, you have to earn it, you have to suffer to get through these things. And that's why, I mean, this comes up all the time, sometimes with like minor league pay, for instance, right. where some people will be like, well, you have to go through the, the gauntlet and the crucible and it separates the wheat from the chaff and everything. And, you know, like there are other ways to separate the better players than the worst players than just like who can afford food and housing. <laughs> so yeah, it's that whole prioritization of just sort of like having it tough and proving yourself that way. Like, sure, you know, developing some some character and, and some stick-to-itiveness and resilience and all of that, that's important, sure. But but also if you can kind of make conditions better for everyone, then, then that seems good. Well, and I always, I mean, like, think about the minor leaguers. You know, I do think that people having the ability to, like, persevere and to struggle with something and then overcome that, like, I think that that is meaningful to like building real self-esteem and experience. And I think baseball presents us with plenty of those opportunities in game. We do not need to manufacture them off field, right? Mm -hmm. We can, if you make all the other stuff, you know, livable and let people thrive, you know, and have a, have a comfortable place to live and good food to eat and not be, you know, constantly balanced on like the knife's edge of financial precarity, then the game can actually do all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's hard and guys fail all the time and they fail, you know, if they're going to fail out of baseball, we should want it to be for baseball reasons, not for like, 
worrying about whether you have enough like money to feed your kid reasons. Those are baseball reasons. Then <laughs> we don't we don't need to valorize that stuff. Like life is hard enough on its own. I just fundamentally reject this idea that like that is the only way to build character. There there's always struggle. I think mm-hmm. we can make the struggle smaller scale and about the actual thing we're interested in rather than being like let's hunger games these guys and see which of them are good baseball players. Like, right. What? Right. Yeah. The column ends with this paragraph. I feel sorry for those boys, the boys who are having things made easier for them. If life is going to be made easier for them at such a young and important age, then they're going to be missing some very important lessons that would help them later on. There are no glare shields in the real world. Yes, there are. I drive a car. It has a little flap down thing. I put on sunglasses. Famously large sunglasses in the 80s, especially. Yeah. (laughs) I think uh, sunglasses made their way to baseball fields like in the 1880s, let alone the 1980s. So, yeah, I I think uh, there are, in fact, glare shields in (laughs) the real life. Maybe not built into your glove, but. What do you think a baseball cap is? (laughs) Right. Sure. But, yeah, you can block some sun, but not all the sun. Come on. We can't. Make things Goodness. too easier for, for everyone. Anyway, it just doesn't have to be. Uh, you know, we can live more generously. I guess yeah. is the, like the takeaway toward e- ourselves and each other. Yes. Well, because David notified me that Bob Green was still kicking around and writing, I did send this to him. I found his email address easily. I was not familiar with his work or, or with him, but I I sent this to him, and he responded, and he said. That's really something, Mr. Lindbergh. I had completely forgotten writing that column, (laughs) which I can understand. It's more than 40 years ago. I would be surprised if he remembered writing that column. Yeah. He continued, and after I received your note, I had to look up Pitchcom to understand what it referred to. I had seen it mentioned among all the other changes to baseball's rules and traditions in recent years, but until your note arrived, I hadn't focused on exactly what it did. I suppose it was inevitable. In 1982, there were a lot of things we couldn't have conceived of, or if we could, we would shake our heads and put them in the categories of flying cars. But there it is in that column, the precursor to Pitchcom. You would know better than I if it's here to stay and if it will outlast the automatic runner on second base in extra innings or the pitch clock. Maybe we can get on the same page about the zombie runner, at least, although we're pro pitch clock here. But what I'm certain will last forever is the magic of a baseball glove. All the technological advances in the world will never alter the fundamental joy of putting on that mitt on a summer afternoon. And I guess I can agree on that much. I have enjoyed putting on gloves in summer afternoons, even without glare shields or built-in pitch call transmitters. So that was a, a real blast from the past, I suppose, that I sent to him. This should be a recurring series. Just uh, contact columnists and send them links to columns that they wrote 40 years ago and have completely forgotten about and see how they think it holds up now. Yeah. I forgot that his note also included a P.S. If that hypothetical development I mentioned in the 82 column comes true about computer-generated electronic signals leading outfielders to the exact spot where a fly ball is going to come down, then we're really cooked. But I guess it's not impossible. There are already golf carts that will direct a player to where his ball has landed in the rough. Yeah, you definitely could do it with StatCast. We actually answered a question on episode 1904 about what if you had the video game-style directional indicators for outfielders to tell them where the ball is going to go in real game. So yeah, you could do it, but why would you? I guess this is one area where I would agree that making things easier would not actually be better. All right, let's end with the trivia answers here. So the first question is, which team has the better head-to-head record all time, the Mets or the A's? Not a lot of history here. 
But the New York Mets have a 12-7 and record all-time versus the Athletics, according to the website StatMuse. And then our answers here from Ryan Nelson. So the highest career war batters who have played for both the Mets and the A's at any point in their career, Ricky Henderson. What? Is that name? Yeah, does that ring a bell? Have you heard of Ricky what? Henderson? Yeah, yeah. So he's on top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mike Piazza, second, another mm. brand name, followed by Willie Randolph, Tony Phillips, and current Met Starling Marte. So that's a pretty solid group. Strong top five there. So not a lot of history between these two teams head-to-head, but a lot of overlap among great players. And then the top five pitchers by Career War, who spent some time with these teams, Kevin Apier, Bartolo Colon, Kenny Rogers, the legendary Doc Ellis, and Aaron Harang. Another pretty good quintet there. And then the first players, the first batters to have played for both of these teams, it looks like there were actually four members of the expansion 1962 Mets who Mm. had previously played for the A's. So Joe Ginsburg, Joe Pignatano, Harry Cheedy, and Marv Thronberry, Marvelous Marv. So those are the the four batters who debuted for the Mets that year who had already played for the A's. And then the first pitcher... Tom Sturdivant, who played for the Mets in 1964 after having played previously with the A's. So Mm. good group there. And as Ryan pointed out, all but Piazza of those 10 high war players played first for the A's and then for the Mets. Mm. So I guess that is the direction you would expect (laughs) since uh, there's kind of the the small market to big market uh, funnel here that's going on and and the A's are constantly trading away players to other teams or having them pass through on their way to somewhere else. Do you think that they try to apply a philosophy of uh, no one went to uh, fold them and no one went to hold them? (laughs) Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah, you could say that, but (laughs) would would people like you at parties? I mean- I don't go to parties anyway, so I'll never know. (laughs) All right, that will do it for today and this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. I guess we could have kept Disha on and knocked out that Yankees preview because that's up next. But we will have a different guest for that segment. It'll be Yankees and Nationals next time. And then after the midweek non-preview pod, we will be talking about the Padres and the Reds, at least in theory. We only have three preview pods left to go. Six teams. We're almost there, people. Of course, we will talk about the big finish for the WBC next week as well. In the meantime, please keep your submissions for Effectively Wild theme songs coming. Podcast at Fangraphs.com. Again, keep them roughly a minute long, maybe 30 seconds or so of lyrics, and then an instrumental portion would be ideal, just like today's submission that you heard at the top of the show, which was by Jonathan Crimes, C-R-Y-M-E-S. Thank you, Jonathan. And you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Brian Kelly, Ethan Lutsky, Jared Ellingson, Tom Lasko, and Pearl. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons, access to monthly bonus pods, one of which Meg and I will be recording this weekend on the first seasons of Poker Face and The Last of Us, two shows we enjoyed. You can also get access to playoff live streams later in the year and discounts on merch and ad-free fan memberships and more. Check it out, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. 
If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us through the Patreon site. If not, you can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can join and or lurk on the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his first week of editing and production assistance. We hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Sunshades, beach babes, got too many um, I hope there is no rain. Sunshades, beach babes, got too many um, I hope there is no rain. Sunshades, beach babes, got too many um, I hope there is no rain.